Welcome to episode 54 of Farmerama. We're recording this on the 25th of March. Here in the UK, the coronavirus outbreak has upended supermarket supply chains, and around the world, farmers are finding themselves forced to adjust to a rapidly changing marketplace and a lot of uncertainty. With drastic measures now in place to control the pandemic, it already feels like a kind of new normal is forming, and that people who are used to taking our food systems for granted are starting to realise how fragile they can actually be. It's a difficult and distressing time for everyone, and our thoughts are with all of you. If there's anything we at Farmerama can do to help you, then please do let us know. At the same time, we're cautiously hopeful that this experience will highlight just how vital farming and farmers are to everyone's lives. For now, we're not out in the fields reporting, but we do have a lot of interviews stashed away in the hopper. So we'll still be bringing you stories from the front line of regenerative farming. The farming community is incredibly resilient and around the world we've seen many fantastic examples of farmers and growers coming together with the food and hospitality industry as well as the charitable sector to create and strengthen local supply chains and ensure no one goes without food. Here are just a few who've got in touch in the last few days. Hello Farmerama listeners, this is Gala. Um, I work at Floor Hatch Farm on the East Sussex, West Sussex border. Hello, it's Fred from Gothany Farm. It's a beautiful sunny morning in Somerset. My name's Monica Akerst and we farm in East Sussex. The sun's shining, the ground is beginning to dry up. I've got that kind of real sense that spring's in the air now. Pigs have stopped rooting. They're much, much more grazing now and before long we'll be putting them back on the herbal lays. That is my absolute favourite time of the year, something to look forward to. Um, and the fields are finally starting to dry out, which means we might be able to get some crops in. We didn't manage to get our autumn crops in. And we're about to head into lambing. The last week or so's flown by, I guess, since I heard the restaurants in London would be shutting their doors. Um, and initially, I guess, fairly selfish stresses about flows of cash and pigs. On the shop side, on the selling side, it's all been really really hectic and um, having to adapt very fast to this new place we find ourselves in you know we've been absolutely at capacity just trying to serve people and keep the shell stocked we need to figure out how we can best serve our community whilst being realistic about it i think farmers are a fairly sensible breed anyway when you're out on your farm interacting with animals rather than humans you're you're not quite the same risk as if you're travelling on the underground in London, are you? So um, uh, it's maybe an advantage to be uh, part of a rural community. We need to make sure, first and foremost, that our staff are healthy so that they continue to work, otherwise <laughs> nobody's getting any food. Although the farming calendar waits for no-one, let's all take these social distancing measures seriously. Um, hello. <laughs> And um, so we can protect our loved ones and get back to normal as quickly as possible. What I find extraordinary is how the value of food has changed overnight. You know, people are suddenly desperate to have their eggs. And, yeah, we keep trying to sort of (laughs) impress upon our customers that the cows are milked every day and the chickens lay eggs every day and they're not going to stop. 
already people are beginning to rally around. The bakeries that we usually supply grain to, like Landrace in Bath, Rye Bakery in Froome, Coombshead Farm, Farrow in Bristol, um, they've all been so quick to fill their customers' baskets with all manner of locally farmed goodies. We're very lucky that this crisis is hitting now and we're going into the summer and there's going to be so many lovely things to eat. And I guess that's the strength of these small, small supply chains. Um, they're manned by friendships and we're all in it together. We've got each other's interests so close to our hearts and we're, we're agile. We're able to adapt quickly. In a way to be hit with this realisation that supermarkets aren't the be-all and end-all is good for us smaller farmers. People realise that localised food systems are um, more resilient, I suppose, in these strange times. And the coming days and weeks will, will give me and, and my customers more space to be creative and innovative and get our food out there in new ways. I think we're all very grateful here to have the rhythm of the farm and all the day-to-day things we have to do to look after the animals and the plants and the soil of course. The reassuring routines of farm work and life have been the tonic. Yeah I mean the sun shining which is yeah I think a lot of us could cry with gratitude that the sun is shining because it was a really really challenging winter. The sun shining. <laughs> Carry on farming. This is our second episode digging deeper into stories from the Oxford Real Farming Conference, where we were the official media partners. This month, we're exploring what it means to own or to steward land as part of a regenerative farming future. We're fascinated and encouraged by the many different ways people are approaching this issue. And at the end of the show, we'll share an exciting new opportunity for you to get involved in a shared land ownership model. Land reform is an emotive subject, but in the last few years, there seems to have been more and more talk about how we might innovate. In the farming community, we all know that land justice underpins everything. Those who have land wield more power and, of course, also have more responsibility. Neither feels quite right on either side. We're going to hear from current and aspiring land stewards about their approaches to land reform. First, here's Molly Scott Cato. Until recently, Molly was a Green MEP for South East England. You might have seen her rather tearful goodbye to the EU when the UK left at the start of this year. When we spoke to Molly, she'd just come out of a session with other political parties. They were discussing how they might approach land reform in a way that both ensures the land is well cared for and addresses long-standing injustices around its ownership. As a Green, I think of land as a commonwealth, and I don't think it's appropriate really for anybody to own land rather than have certain rights over land for a certain time. And particularly, it's not right that we have vast amounts of our land controlled by private estates, really an aristocratic land regime. And that's keeping a lot of people out of farming who could otherwise gain access to that land. So it's a sort of massive source of injustice that we tend to take for granted. Land is a common treasury. And, you know, that's an old idea. And we've, we challenged the enclosures that happened in the sort of 16th century onwards, whereby the right that everybody has to grow food and to graze animals on land was sort of taken away and major, large estates were created. You know, vast 
swathes of our countryside has just been passed down from generation to generation of aristocratic families. And now we also see people who've made wealth in their own lifetimes, whether through banking or, I mean, James Dyson's the most notorious example. Those people put their money into land so that they can then pass it on tax-free to their descendants. So we're seeing you know, long-term concentration of land for perhaps a 1,000 years, but also now more land being taken up and, and concentrated. And then people who want to actually farm that land and produce food for us all, they now have to pay rent to people who are not paying tax. So the whole kind of economics of land is skewed in favour of a small number of people. These have seemed like radical ideas, but they've radic- been, they're radical ideas that have always been part of our intellectual discussion and our political discussion and I think it's really good to see them being revived and I think the reason that's happening is that with climate change we know that the most important role that land can play is as a carbon sink and we need to find ways of making sure that happens whatever the individual landowner might think and so it kind of revives that suggestion that we need to have have more of a say as the public over how land is used and also have a a land reform so more people have access to land. Ninian Stewart is co-founder of the Centre for Stewardship and comes from a very long line of landowners in Scotland. There have been significant land reforms this century in Scotland, including the introduction of right to roam. But Scotland also has very large swathes of land owned by a small number of individuals. Ninian is one of a number of people looking to move the idea of ownership towards one of stewardship. By chance, at Falkland, we are living and working in what was an ancient seat of the Stuart Kings for 200 years. And the Stuart Kings, before they became kings and queens, were in fact stewards. So the notion and the word stewardship is an Anglo-Saxon word which originally meant kind of keeper of the hall. Um, But in a sense, it was the hall at the heart of a community and stewardship has been moved to being, I suppose, the idea of looking after things for others and for the long term. The farm at Falkland has been in Ninian's family for hundreds of years, but ever since he took it over, Ninian hasn't quite managed to wrap his head around the idea of owning land. As a teenager, my dad had been, I suppose, what you would call in Scotland a benevolent laird, And I kind of thought, "Mm, don't know if I want to be, you know, just didn't feel right. I've struggled for a long time as to how can you own land? How can you own a hill? How can you own a forest? You know, it's, it's, it's a funny concept that we've come up with. So I've been working with my two children. I didn't want to disinherit my children without them being involved in that. So between the three of us, we absolutely consciously want to move it on into a different form of ownership. So at the moment, we're exploring what that wider sense of ownership might look like. And I suppose over the last, probably, gosh, it's probably the the Charitable Trust was set up 25 years ago. We had initially entered into a lease on the estate with um, a guy called Bruce Bennett, who initially took on two acres of land and started a small holding. He now has 20 acres of land and employs 30 people and has a farm shop and a cafe. And, yeah, the first... Um, organic farm cafe in Scotland. About five and a half years ago, we set up a new farmer scheme. When the first publicity went out, we had about 24 people in the room who wanted to do that. And in practice, four people came on board pretty quickly. In fact, there happened to be two couples. 
um, and there is now a third unit. So people who have up to two hectares of land. Um, so one is called Falkland Kitchen Farm, uh, Nat and Bridie, and what they do is they grow vegetables, but they also Nat is also a cook, and so they kind of add value by also doing kind of catering and all of that. And the other one, Meadow Sweet Organics, they do a range of um, vegetables, but also herbs. And um, the initiator, the sort of co-founder of that, Rosie, is a herbalist. So in a sense, um, they're still there five years on, and we've now entered into a second five years with both of those um, entities. And that's been really exciting. It's kind of been just lovely. What happens when you open the gate to people to be able to kind of come in and give them enough space to take ownership, really. But the challenge now is to say, and how can we really long-term sustain that? And, and what does that mean? How, does, how to widen that circle of, not just widening the circle of stewardship, but also widening the circle of ownership? Partly when you're considering of moving on the ownership, there's something about how much of a vision you can bring to it and how much you need to enable and allow that vision to evolve. Um, but I think we've been working for a number of years with a number of stakeholders around the estate as to what it might look like. So I think in some ways the estate is moving in a direction where it's going to be quite diverse. We've been focusing not just on farming, but also on forestry. So we have a 1,000 acres of forest within a 4,000-acre estate. We are doing a lot of things. So on the farm, for instance, we have a wood miser, a mobile sawmill, so we kind of use that for doing some fencing, but also for building huts and all of those things. So there's that layer. There is horticultural growing. We have some land, which is good enough for horticultural growing. A lot of the land is hill land and not that great. And so we have a beef herd. We have Aberdeen Angus and Belted Galloways. And so we've been developing um, those breeds and to a point where... Yeah, we can kind of develop and sell food for people. And I think what we don't quite know is, for instance, beyond the new farmers as they were and who will have kind of had 10-year leases, is where we go with that. So I think at the moment, one of the things we are looking at is, for instance, joint ventures. Sometimes it makes sense that, for instance, the home farm might be able to get more kits. So then can you do joint ventures with different people who come in and do different things? I think what was coming up yesterday, what I do think is valid and needed, is how when you're trying to go a little bit against the tide, trying to go in a different way, where can you get support to do that? Because I suppose from where I am, there's been a real... um, There's a need for change. As we make these changes, for me, I think there's probably a need for some kind of peer support and you know I think in Scotland Scottish Land Commission have been very helpful in advisory and you know there are bodies who can offer you that support if you're trying to take things in a slightly different way. Sebastian Parsons of the Stockwood Community Benefit Society is also a landowner doing things differently. He's been working with a number of organisations to take his own family farm into community ownership in a way that's working for both his family and for the farm's new investors. So my story goes back 35 years. My grandfather was selling his farm. He had my mum and then three sons and he'd 
offered each son a partnership. And he hadn't got on with them and bought them out. Never occurred to him that my mum was the farmer. Anyway, after he bought the last one out, he was old enough to retire and he said, since none of you are going to take it on, I'm going to sell it. But you've got a chance now to put something to me. And they didn't manage to put something together. I think the siblings would have done, but not with the partners taken into account. The land was worth so much money and everybody had different plans and different ideas and different visions and they couldn't agree. It was one of the first two biodynamic farms in the UK. And there was, when my grandfather said he was going to sell it, there was a big fundraising campaign and they raised over £400,000 to buy it. And in fact, it was sold to a, a, an oil magnate for 650. But the fact that there was such an effort to raise money to save it signaled to me that it was an important farm and that something really awful had happened when it was sold. And my sisters and I didn't talk about it, but when we grew up, we all carried the same sadness. And we ended up in business together and we ended up being successful. And we, what we did with our success, if you like, was we bought a farm. What we realised was we'd bought a farm, so we'd sort of like retrieved the balance. You know, there was another biodynamic farm in the world now. But what would happen to it? Why wouldn't the same thing happen? Why wouldn't we fall out? And if we didn't fall out, why wouldn't our kids fall out? And we basically, we hatched this plan to put the, the farm into a community trust and to be the farmers as tenants. So as long as we wanted to be the farmers, we would be. And if we didn't want to be the farmers, we just walked away. The trust would handle it. We wouldn't have to have a row. So there's a farm business which my family still owns and a farm that my family still runs, owned by 400 people who have bought shares because they believe in what we're doing. They want us to do it. It's, it's something that people get more than just uh, money out of. And from our perspective, we are still a family farm. And we've just got a lot more people around us who are interested. So it's, we, we think of it as a warmth body. You know, it's like the community that supports us. This question about power and land and autonomy and so on is very difficult because farmers are very autonomous. You know, they're their own men or their own women. They walk about in their, on their own kingdom. But with that ownership comes this huge asset value, which makes everything go twisted and wrong. So as a family, what we had to decide was what's our most important thing. And our most important thing is that we can farm. That, you know, that the land is respected, that the land carries on. And nobody's going to chew it up and change it, you know. And that river is going to babble through this land, unpoisoned by our land forever. You know, the kingfisher isn't going to be driven off the land. We're going to have this ecosystem. It belongs to this land and nobody's going to take it away from the land. So all of these things are important to us. So a tenancy means that the owners of the land don't control the farming. The farming is controlled by the farmer. That's the autonomy we need. We need to be allowed to farm. The autonomy that we don't need is we don't need to be able to sell it. Um, we don't need to be able to uh, build houses on it. What we need is to have land that we look after, that we bring our children up on, that we farm. 
By creating different models of land ownership, we've got an opportunity to redress historical and ongoing injustices and to make land ownership and stewardship serve all communities. Hi, I'm Ola, um, co-founder of Lion, Land in Our Names. And I'm Leah Penniman, uh, founding co-director of Soulfire Farm in New York in the United States. Leah's been on the show a few times. She's doing important work to tackle racism and injustice in the food system over in the United States. There are very few black farmers and rural landowners in Britain. Ola is part of a group called Lion, or Land in Our Name, who are working to change this. Listen back to episode 52 to hear our interview with fellow Lion co-founder, Jacina Callist, to hear some more about their work. Inspired by experiences as a landowner in rural England and southwestern Nigeria, Ola's work actively encourages people to think about their relationship to the land in radical and imaginative ways. Leah and Ola are in conversation here, sharing their thoughts on land justice and the future of land ownership in the UK and beyond. My understanding is that the first big spike in CO2 was in the 1800s when colonizers um, plowed the Great Plains and released half of the carbon from the soil into the atmosphere, you know, a couple generations before the Industrial Revolution put that next big spike. And so if we were to actually convert like all of the lands that are currently cultivated into Afro-Indigenous farming practices, if we, you know, put lands in permanent silvopasture, do perennial rich polyculture agriculture, uh, make African dark earth and vermicompost, like we've been taught, um, terracing, all of those technologies which have existed for thousands of years and have been continued to be approved upon, we actually can sequester the carbon that we need um, and restore the atmosphere to health. The angle at which I come at it from is the work that we're doing is seeking to restore those practices that Leah's talked about in terms of looking at engaging with the land in a new and different way, in ways that do not degradate the land, but in terms of reverence for the land. And in reverence, we, we, we take care and we uh, hold it dear to us. And um, widely, climate justice could start to consider these sort of things, like the wider dynamics of like our society, so not just in terms of the things that we identify as scientific issues, but also, the, you know, the racial element and like the politics and the, the gender, the redistribution of, of land from the commons to the wealthy. I think there's a social element that we have to consider of like, why is it that these dynamics are so such that we're in a crisis? The thing with British colonialism is like, it was very insidiously violent in the sense that it didn't occur on this land like we don't have necessarily a direct claim that my great 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 grandfather farmed here but the disruption that occurred in the land that we do come from therefore gives me that right to this land we didn't come here by mistake we were forced here by displacement that's sort of the angle which we now start to look at are sort of right here, like this is our home. Many of us can't go back to places that we've been. And I think the ancestry or the roots begins now. Obviously, it's very different in the United States because a lot mm. of the bloodshed happened right there, mm. you know, and the, you know, the bodies of our ancestors came from Nigeria and from Ghana and from mm. Togo and Benin and came there. Mm. And so I can trace a lineage mm -hmm. back. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that my grandmother, Brownlee McCullough, um, was the last to be able to farm the land in Rock Hill, South Carolina because of air property exploitation. And so I can trace back that land loss. 
Um, and so there's also, there's a, a source of belonging in that, but also the pain mm -hmm. is right in front of us. And so I think the particular way that trauma impacts the black community um, in the United States is very related to, to that recent story. Like my grandmother, my great grandmother was a sharecropper was picking cotton or was, you know, beaten at this tree. Mm -hmm. And so that um, ecophobia mm -hmm. and that, um, sense that the land really was the criminal in mm. some way is is quite clear and present in the black community. You know, people that feel a certain stigma with the land, if we're trying to introduce them back to the land, it's like we need to do it in ways that are culturally relevant, in ways that remind them of a sense of, remind them of a time that they felt happy. So for instance, if they, as a kid, used to farm somewhere in Nigeria and you know, they've long been removed from that and there's a lot of trauma of, I don't want to get my hands dirty, that's poor people's work, I don't want to do that, etc. What are the ways in which we can then, you know, reconnect them with that? And there's like, there's song. Song is a very useful way of doing it. And I think also connecting people to the foods that they eat culturally and that's just one way, one of many ways which we can end stigma and really like get people to just open themselves up to the land. There is a clamoring to come back to the land which surprised even me. For those who do have resistance, uh, which is totally understandable, it's usually one of two things that work. Like one is being exposed to a different narrative about our connection to land not being circumscribed by slavery, but really be extending thousands of years, you know, before that and all the contributions and this pride that can come. But then also for a lot of young people, there's this like almost spiteful resistance when they realize that corporations are just out to kill them by pumping their bodies full of these you know, corporatized, highly processed foods, um, that sense of so that survival instinct comes up and they're like, I'm not going to let them destroy my life. They've already, you know, taken all these things from me. I'm not going to let them take my life. And so we need to reclaim our connection to food. I will say that the land does most of the work. You know, if we can get folks to a place where they're over that hump of fear and they get to make that introduction to the land, as soon as the bare feet or hands touch the earth, she like claims her children home. But honestly... Like, folks want it. It's just that the resources aren't always there, you know. At OOFC, Lion held their first caucus. The activity we did, we basically asked people in the room to think about the resources that they could possibly offer to aspiring land stewards in of people of colour in the UK. Um, also, what kind of legacy do they want to leave and in terms of succession? It was powerful because I think we have inside of us this, this desire to give, but not until we're asked. But there was this buzz at the end and I think people felt inspired and people felt like they did come and, you know, make a difference or something or they did show up in some way. I felt inspired in many ways by the conversation. I think most notably, uh, you know, this conference was opened by reminding us that the empire wins by making us feel that we're alone. Right? And that's certainly the case in the UK with black farmers and farmers of color who you can probably count, you know, on the official record on two hands, if that Right. So it was really in maybe less. Right. So it was really <laughs> yeah. inspiring to me. I feel like in that room, we were witnessing part of the birth of a movement. I felt like this moment I'm getting to witness like the birth of the UK black and brown farming movement, um, which is very exciting. If you want to find out more about land reform in the UK, then we recommend checking out the Land Justice Network. There's no doubt that conversations around land can often be highly emotive. But we recognise that it's vital to have them if we want to build a food and farming system that's fit for all. 
Hello, Abby here. Just wanted to add a little message at the end of the show. If you want to be actively involved in a shared land ownership model, then there's a great opportunity to become an investor member of the Ecological Land Co-op, or ELC, right now. The ELC purchase plots of land around the UK and then make them available for small, low-impact ecological farmers. They already have a number of sites and they're currently looking to raise £400,000 with their new Community Share Investment Offer. That will allow them to double their number of sites. You can invest anything from £500 upwards. If you do have the money available, then it is a brilliant way to be part of transforming the UK farming landscape to more ecological farming, whether you farm or not. And we understand not everyone has that kind of money available, and so there's many other ways to get involved. I was able to become an investor member in the last round and feel really proud to be part of this amazing initiative and to be supporting the farmers who are on the different plots currently. To find out more, head to the Ecological Land Co-op website or message us on social and we can help answer any questions. The investment offer closes in a few weeks, so check it out sooner rather than later if you are interested. This episode of Farmerama was written and edited by Susie McCarthy and Hannah Sutherland, with the usual suspects, Abby Rose, Katie Revel, who's been presenting with me, Joe Barrett. This episode features interviews recorded by Dala Eno and Cathy St. German at the Oxford Real Farming Conference 2020. Community support for Farmerama is provided by Hannah Sutherland, Fran Bailey, Annie Landless, Eliza Jenkins, and Olivia Oldham. Our theme music is by Owen Barrett. We are extremely grateful to our Patreon supporters who help us make the show. If you'd like to support Farmerama, visit patreon.com forward slash Farmerama. 